we are ready to dig into this, uh, the word here today. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2, all the way at the back of the Bible. Um, something about today, just to tell you what today is about, it is entirely about suffering. But ironically, even though this is entirely about suffering, that's what we'll talk about the whole time. Um, this is, at the very same time, probably my favorite letter um, that is written to one of the churches. And the reason for that is because this is one of two churches that do not get any correction from Jesus. So it's fun because it's, it is about suffering, but it's entirely encouragement, which makes it, I don't know, for me, it's probably my favorite one um, that I'm most excited to preach, if I'm going to be honest. Um, as you guys are turning there, I also wanted to tell you something really cool. I had two different pastors this week, friends of ours. Um, one is Pastor Mike O'Brien at Bloom Baptist, which is just down the road from us. Um, also, uh, Pastor Mason Good, who's planting a church in Chillicothe. They both, their whole churches, took time out of their services the last two weeks to pray for us um, during their gatherings. I just want to tell you that because that's just, that is God's people um, caring about you. I know a lot of you guys don't know either of those churches, probably, especially the church in Chillicothe, because why would you? Um, but that's just, I don't know, it's evidence, like there are people, there are God's people around this area that care about us, they care about you guys, they're praying for you guys, they're recognizing what God is doing through Maranatha, and they're joining in us with that. Uh, hopefully that's an encouragement for you guys today. Um, if you are here for the first time with us, as I said earlier, this is the second time we've ever gathered together as a church. Um, and so we're glad that you're here with us, even as we've sort of begun to meet, even though we haven't really like fully launched yet. Um, we're happy that you're here with us. If you want information um, about us, I'd love to give it to you. But there's also a way that you can share some information with us first, which would be great um, by grabbing a connect card before you leave, filling it out and uh, dropping it in the offering box, which is on the table in the back of the sanctuary. Um, if you didn't have one, there are Connect cards on that table, as well as books, mugs, which is our gift to you. Please take a mug today, as well as a Bible. Um, before anything else, if you don't have the Bible at home, please take a Bible with you today. There's nothing on earth I, I'd rather you uh, leave here with today than an act, the actual Word of God for you to read in your home. Now, as we dig into this text today, we want to be uh, reminding us why we're doing this series. So, for, the, for many of us, the book of Revelation, if you weren't here last week, as I said the book of Revelation, to turn there, there's a good chance that some of us like break out in hives a little bit when that name is mentioned. Um, other people get really excited just by the mention of the word. And, and honestly, I want us to, as we go through this series together, we're not going to go through the whole book of Revelation, but I do hope that this series is as a way of helping us understand the book as a whole in some ways. Um, so if you're anxious at the mention of Revelation or if you're excited about it, either place, it's fine. We're going to work through these letters together. Um, and the reason that we're doing this is because we want to ask the question, what does Jesus want in his local church? In these letters, these are letters written from Jesus to seven actual flesh and blood churches that were meeting in Asia Minor, which um, now is the country of Turkey. They're all over there. And Jesus writes them each letters to tell them what's good and what's not so good. And so that's really valuable for us, right, as we begin to meet and we're asking the question, okay, so we're going to be a church. What kind of things does Jesus approve? Does he encourage? Does he applaud? And what kind of things does Jesus correct? That's what we're going to discover as we go through this. And today, honestly, the 
the good, I'm not much of a title person, but if I was, the title today could be something like, this is what Jesus says to a suffering church. That's like if this was a YouTube video and it needed a catchy title. I'm not very good at those, but maybe that's what it would get people to click on it if it was online. This is what Jesus says to suffering church, to suffering people. This is what we're going to talk about today. Now, as we go through this, I want to remind you about how we're reading the text of Revelation. And to use that, I'm going to use a word called hermeneutic um, that may or may not be familiar to you. The word hermeneutic is a fancy word that means the principles that you are using to interpret the text. The principles, the ideas, like the, the methods you are using to interpret the Bible. Now, as we do that, there's two big parts of our hermeneutic, our philosophy, our principles of interpreting the Scriptures. The first is we have to remember that this, this was written to real, actual people. It was not written to symbolic churches. It was actual churches that were meeting in real-time, flesh-and-blood people. And also, Revelation 1-1 tells us that it was written to tell them what would soon take place. It was written to tell them what would happen to them. It was giving them a heads-up of, like, this is what you're about to walk through. As people, And this is what Jesus wants you to know about what you're about to face. So as we interpret it, we want to interpret it in light of those verses. And also a rule that we use through the entirety of the Bible is that we want to, help, we want to have Scripture help us interpret other Scripture. So when there's a part of the Bible that is unclear, that doesn't make sense, that's kind of tricky, um, especially in the book of Revelation as it is a, a book of signs, right? The book of Psalms is a book of poems. The book of Judges is a book of history. The book of Revelation is a book full of signs. And some of, the, some of those signs are kind of difficult, but if we go to other scripture, especially the Old Testament, those signs become a lot more clear. So we're going to use those two things to help us understand this text. As I said last week, every single message in this uh, series is going to follow the same outline because every single letter follows the same outline. And it's the exact same outline that you or I would probably use if we were going to write a letter to somebody. We would greet them. We would probably encourage them before we gave them bad news. Some of you guys, if you're like me, you might jump into bad news first. That's not a great way to start a letter or to encourage somebody. Um, but Jesus here gives a greeting. He gives them encouragement. He gives them a correction. And he offers them a reward. He offers them a promise at the end. Today, though, Smyrna is one of the churches that gets off scot-free. There's no corrections for them, which is good for us um, as we kind of hope to be a church like that, right? Now, this church was one that was suffering heavily, and so that's what Jesus has written to talk to them about. But the encouragement that he gives them is the same encouragement that he gives us, which is that we can overcome trial suffering. We can overcome these things by the victory, the promise, and the treasure of Christ. Through his victory, his promise, his treasure, we can walk through suffering and overcome, right? That phrase, overcome, is used in every single letter on purpose by Jesus because he's telling you that there is something to overcome by faith to walk in. Let's read this passage together. Um, we stand out of reverence for God's word, and if you're able to, I'd love to invite you to stand with us. Revelation 2, starting in verse 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, 
The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Let's pray together. Father God, as we open your word, we need your help to understand it. Lord, you are the one who spoke this word, and we need um, ears to hear, understand, believe, and obey this word, Lord. But we pray not just to be obedient, Lord, we pray that we would understand the beauty of Christ in such a way that our hearts enjoy this truth, that our hearts rejoice in this truth today. We thank you for the good news of victory through Jesus, and we, we rejoice in his name today. Amen. Amen. So, the first question you might ask as we read this letter is quite simple. Who is it from, right? Who did this letter come from? That's a pretty valuable piece of information for whatever letter you're reading, is who's the one that sent it to me? And of course, the answer is Jesus, right? But, as I said last week, every single time Jesus is identified in these letters, he's identified differently, right? It's the same author. Jesus is writing to um, John, and he's telling John to hand it to the messenger of the church, or the angel of the church, which is um, a symbol of the pastor of that church. And so John is receiving all these letters from Jesus, but Jesus is identified differently. And how he's identified matters. It matters every single time to every single one of these churches because God is good enough to give himself a name in every single letter that matters for that exact local church. He's good enough to give himself a name for each local church. And Jesus identifies himself here as the one who was first and last, who died and came to life. And that doesn't come out of thin air. If you go to Revelation 1, um, verses 17 and 18, right, all these titles are actually pulled from earlier in the book. Revelation 1, 17 through 18 actually says this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Right away, Jesus gives these people the, the two most important things for someone who's going through suffering. The two things that you and I need most when we are suffering, when we're being, especially if we're being persecuted, if we're going through tribulation and trial, the two things that are most important is that we can remember how utterly infinite Jesus is and also how completely personal he is. That's why Jesus tells them, he reminds them that he is the first and the last. He is big enough, holy enough that John falls down like he's dead when he sees him. Remember that the book of Revelation should give us a much, a much bigger picture of Christ than you and I normally walk around with. We normally walk around with a very casual picture of Jesus, a very um, only merely human picture of Jesus, as though he's not the God who is the first and the last. But the book of Revelation pushes us out of that. But Jesus isn't just uh, fearful, right? He isn't just fear-inspiring. That same moment, he instantly puts his hand on John, and he says, fear not. 
So he is uh, the source of the fear. He's also the one comforting John in his fear. He says, fear not, because I'm the one in control. The picture of Christ throughout this book is immeasurably more powerful and holy than you can imagine, but is also way more present and caring and kind than you and I can imagine. That's who our Savior is. This reality of Jesus being both holy but caring and kind means that for you and I, we ought to be inspired to obedience, right? Because we see how holy he is, just how different from that holiness our sin is. So we, we follow him, but at the same time, we're invited to rest and to trust in Christ. Because he's not just distant and awe-inspiring and fear-inspiring. He's also present. He puts his hand on us. He says, fear not. That's who this letter is from. But who's it to? It's written to the church in Sardis, which is a city that was not very big, but it was really important. The Sardis was actually called the Pride of Asia at this time. And Sardis was, although it wasn't size-wise a capital, it was, in fact, a cultural center. It was a commercial center. Um, it was incredibly Greek, even though it's part of the Roman Empire. It was at the same time incredibly Greek in its culture, which means that it's incredibly pagan in its culture. So it's got tons of gods running around, tons of gods that you can worship, any of them, no matter what you'd like to worship, as long as it's one of these gods. But as one commentator said, no religion that challenged Greek culture was popular in Smyrna. Anything that challenged the Greek culture was a problem. So then why were the Christians persecuted? Because they were really the only group persecuted in Smyrna at this time. The Jewish people here in Smyrna weren't really persecuted, right? As a matter of fact, as we'll see later on, they were sort of the means of persecution for the Christian. The reason for that is because the Greek culture there, plus the Jewish culture there, didn't see any conflict between uh, the Jewish religion and the pagan religion of that time. Like they could, they could sort of play nice with each other, hang out together. There wasn't, they just didn't have friction between the two of them. But the difference was that the Christians had a confession that put them in obstinance to the culture. The, the Christians had a Savior that went up against Caesar, right? To not worship Caesar as Lord was a crime. And the Christians had a confession and a belief that actually made them not worship Caesar. They didn't let them play nice with the culture around them. That's why they were persecuted. That's why they were going to be persecuted more, which isn't exactly good news to receive from Jesus when he says, I know you're being persecuted, but wait, there's more. Um, as we see in verse 9, read this with me. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. We'll pause there for a moment. The first few words of this sentence are um, incredible to me. I think they ought to be incredible to us. And Jesus starts off every single one of these letters. He says, I know. He says, I know. But normally Jesus says, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know the, the things that you're obeying in. I know the things that you're trying to do. But here, Jesus doesn't mention their works. The first words out of our Savior's mouth to this church, the first words of the shepherd to the sheep are, I know your tribulation. I know your pain. I know your persecution. 
I know that you're being slandered. I know that you're in danger. I know that you've been made poor. I know. And sometimes we are suffering in life in such a way that there's not actually, there's no way for us to really convey it to somebody else. There's no way for us to really explain it to somebody else. And that is an incredibly heavy weight. And sometimes the, most, the greatest thing we could hear from somebody else is somebody who actually does know what we're going through. And they say, I know. I know. And that's, that's one thing when it comes from a human. But to hear the words of your Savior the first and the last, to look at you, church, and to say, I know, I know your tribulation. I know how hard it is. I know and I care and I understand in a deeper way than you could ever grasp. And Jesus knows this because he's the one who walks among the lampstands, right? We talked about this last week, that Jesus is seen walking among his lampstands, which is a sign of his church, because Jesus identifies with his church. He's a part of his church. He cares about his church. He knows everything there is to know about, their, about his church and what it's going through. He is with his people. The shepherd is with his sheep. And he says, I know. And he says to them, I know your poverty, but you are rich. These people were probably incredibly poor because they were following Christ, right? They're following Christ. They meet trouble in the social realm, they run into problems, right? They lose business deals, they lose family, they lose friends, they lose houses, and they're poor. And Jesus says, I know that, but really quickly, he's there to say, but you're rich. But you have a treasure that is not taken away from you. Because what Jesus knows is that these Christians, even though they were being impoverished for following him, they actually have a treasure that's being stored up for them, right? They have a treasure that is at a place where thieves can't steal and moths can't destroy and the world around them cannot take away. And even in this moment, they're, be giving, they're being given spiritual riches that are far more valuable than all the things that's been taken away from them. Jesus knows that there's a, there's a weight of glory being prepared for these people that is beyond all compare with what they're going through right now. And he knows, because this is true, in God's kingdom... And in God's world, God has a tendency to work uh, a treasure for us through trials. He has a tendency to work glory through loss. He has a tendency to work silver and gold out of suffering for you and me. That is his, that's how he does it. That's how he's done it since the cross. The way up has always been the way down. And so Jesus reminds them, he wants to remind them in, in this and for us, he wants to remind them that he has gone before them. The, the call today for you and I is not be a great Christian and in your own power have the strength to get through suffering because of your own mighty faith. The call for you and I is the fact that Jesus has already done it. Jesus has walked through suffering. He's walked through loss and through tribulation. He's won a victory on the other side and he's given that to you in such a way that it can never be taken away. And because of that, we can walk forward. Sorry to spoil the entire sermon in like the first few minutes, but that's, that's what I'll say the rest of the time just using different words, I promise. Jesus reminds them that tribulation is actually coming. He says, behold, there's going to be more. 
He says um, that this is going to be in the form of blasphemy and slander against them from the Jews. I don't want us to be tripped up on two uh, phrases in here. Um, I know that there, these are some tricky ones as we first read them um, because the word synagogue of Satan is pretty strong language. I don't know about you guys, but to call um, a group of people a synagogue of Satan seems really harsh. Um, and also, um, to, sell, to say they act like they're Jews or they think they're Jews but they're not, also very harsh. Now, I don't want us to get tripped up here. What, what this is uh, communicating, it's emphasizing the fact that to be a part of God's people is not about flesh and blood and um, your heritage. It's about faith. To be a part of God's people is about faith. It's about being born again into a new family, into a new nation. If you think to First Peter, right, there's a chosen nation, there's a new priesthood, and we're born again into that by God's grace. So it doesn't matter that these Jewish people were ethnically Jewish. It doesn't matter that they followed the Jewish religion of the Old Testament. They were not Jews. What that means is they were not truly the children of Abraham because they had no faith. Now, the reason that the church was... Um, dealing with this is because they weren't fitting in well, right? If you and I fit in well with the world, then we will not be persecuted. If there's no friction, if there's no conflict between you and your neighbor and your, your fellow students or your, your family members, then there will never be persecution. So you can walk that road if you want to, but if there's any amount of friction and obedience to Christ, then there will be persecution. As uh, Joel Beakey said in his commentary, I love this, he said that the world can tolerate goodness but not godliness. The world around you is okay with you if you're just a good person, just a generically good person. The world is totally fine with that. But if you want to be a distinctly godly person, there will be problems. There will be problems because the world wants the gift of goodness, but not the giver of it, right? But the Christians, again, had a, a Christ that actually um, competed with Caesar, right? A Christ, a king, that actually went up and, and pushed back against the throne and the reign of Caesar. And I wonder if you and I are living a holy enough life that we would actually be slandered. Like, are we obedient enough that some have a, a cause, sorry, um, to, to warrant slander against us? Or do we fit in well enough that it just doesn't really happen? Now, as we go into this title, this um, synagogue of Satan, I want to show you what I mean by why they're called this. They're called this because they're doing the works of the devil, which, again, is strong language. But we think about what the name Satan means. It means enemy. It means adversary. And what does Satan do? He's the accuser of God's people, right? So he lobs up accusations. He lobs up lies and slander against God's people. And so when these Jews are acting as the synagogue of Satan, um, that's what they're doing. Right? They're the ones spreading slander. They're the ones spreading blasphemy against this church, which is why they're given this title. I mean, you can start turning to John chapter 8, verse 42, um, and we'll get there in a second. John 8, verse 42. This idea is not only here, by the way. It's in Galatians 6, 16. In Galatians, it talks about the true Israel of God being the Israel of faith. The true Israel of God being Israel of faith. Also in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, it talks about not everyone who's descended from Abraham are from Abraham, but those who are the children of the promise are the children of Abraham. So Jesus, in chapter 8 of John, verse 42, he's having a clash with some Jewish people, with some Pharisees, 
and they are denying that he is the Christ. And so he says this to them. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, because they had just said, Abraham's our father, God is our father, we're children of God. But Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a, fa- he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So why, why am I like hammering this point home? Because at this point you're probably like, I get it. The reason that this is so important is because we need to understand that to be a child of God is to be a child of faith. To be a child of God is to believe in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you and I don't belong to God. We are not friends with God. We're not just automatically on good terms with him because of our heritage, because we came from Christians, because we came from a Jewish heritage, because we are good at religious games and everything like that. We're not with, on good terms with God because of anything like that. We are there solely by faith. That's how you and I are children of Abraham, children of God. And I know that's, really, that's black and white, right? The, the words that Jesus uses here are incredibly stark and incredibly um, not friendly. It's not how we talk today. We don't, we don't want to call people children of the devil. That is strong. Um, but that is exactly what Jesus says. He says, look, you are either in me and you are saved and you are with me. You believe that I'm the Christ or you belong to the world, the flesh, the devil. So run we need to remember how good it is that we have been called God's child by faith. Not by works, not by being good enough to be a good religious person who's a child of God, but by faith. Now the next thing that's in here that might trip us up is this reference to 10 days. I don't know if you're like me, but as I read through this passage, I go, what on earth does it mean that they're going to have tribulation for 10 days? Um, this number is, is not a literal number um, for this church. I don't believe that Jesus is giving them a timeline of you will be in trouble for exactly 10 days. I think that the whole idea of this is that their tribulation has been going on for a while, and it's probably going to keep going for a while. But the reason that he gives it a number is to show them that he knows exactly how long it will be. And it'll be complete. He's in control of it, so they don't have to worry about it. They don't have to fear it. The reason that I I believe this about um, this number is because of this being a reference to the story of Daniel. If you think back to Daniel in the Old Testament, the entire nation of Israel is brought into exile. They're brought into Babylon. And whenever they do that, they take a bunch of the young men of Israel because they know how to re-enculture a people. So they grab the young men, and they're going to teach them how to be Babylonians not Israelites. So they grab Daniel and a bunch of other young Hebrews and they put them into training and put them into Babylonian schools. And as they do that, they also give them a Babylonian diet. And Daniel says, I'm not going to eat that. That would be a sin. Let me eat this instead. And then the man who's in charge of Daniel says, are you crazy? Because if I do that, if I give you a different diet and there's anything wrong with you at all, then this king is going to kill me, not you. Like, my neck is on the line if you do anything wrong. 
And Daniel says, I get it, but let me do this for 10 days. He actually says, let us be tried for 10 days and see on the other side if we are better, stronger, healthier. Now, at the end of those 10 days, not to spoil the story, but Daniel and his friends are, in fact, stronger, healthier um, than everyone else that eats the king's food, right? And so this is, um, I think, an evidence. I think Jesus is reminding them because these people knew this story well. And so Jesus is reminding them that this is actually going to be God exalting them through suffering, that their suffering is not going to be purposeless and just a bunch of pain for no reason, it's not Christ just putting them tr through tribulation for the sake of uh, trying his church. But through this, they're going to be stronger. They're going to be even richer than they are now. Because that's what God does. He works reward through exile, suffering, and pain. As his children walk through those things in obedience, God gives us riches. And Jesus actually says that they're going to face tribulation, prison, and even death. Be faithful even unto death. And Jesus says this to them because he knows, and we know, that God has worked through death before. Right? God, your God, church, has brought life through death before. He knows how to do that. That is what he does. He knows that your, their trial of this church is purposeful. And I want to tell you today that your trial, your suffering, the mistreatment against you, the friction you face for following Christ, all of those things are purposeful. They are not just painful. I know there's a lot of suffering in the room today. Um, I know that for some of us, it is suffering that is um, maybe because we're following Christ. Maybe for some of us, it's suffering that is uh, health issues. Maybe it's suffering because there's been you know, things in our family for years and years and years and years and years that are still causing us pain. But those things, all of the suffering of your life is not purposeless. It is painful. God knows it is painful, but it is not purposeless. And that, that's an incredibly comforting thing because sometimes we can really struggle with um, knowing that God is in control of suffering, and yet we still face it. But it would be really, it would be way worse if you and I had to sit here today and say, good news, it's both painful and purposeless, right? Good news, guys. Like, that we could let God off the hook maybe in our minds, um, and we would, for a moment, we would feel good. But then we'd realize, then how did this happen? Does that mean the devil was in charge of this? Does that mean God isn't in control of this? And it's hard, it's not easy for our minds to reconcile because we are not God-sized. It is painful, but it's purposeful. And there is an eternal weight of glory on the other side of every single ounce of suffering. And your God will not ever forget the reward. Your God will never forget to be faithful. He never will even to the point of death. If you look at verse, um, the second half of verse 10, it says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's another, that's another phrase that might trip us up. Actually, crown of life might trip us up too. Remember that all of these, all of these rewards that are promised in, this, in these letters are 
just different pictures of the salvation given to believers in Christ. So it's not that only the church in Smyrna gets to have a crown, right? If you read James 1.12, the crown of victory, the crown of life is mentioned there too. It's offered to all believers. But the reward that is promised to each church, just like the greeting is on purpose, the reward is on purpose. And so this church that's, that's facing even death needs to be told specifically that there is a crown on the other side of it that there's victory on the other side of it, um, and that there will not even be pain for them in the second death. If you go to Revelation uh, chapter 20, verse 14, it says this, talking about what the second death is. This is, comes up numerous times throughout the book. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So now we know. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of a fire. So this, the second death is a symbol in the book of Revelation for the eternal wrath of God being poured out on sin. It's a symbol for hell. And this is the, the, the shocking warning um, for us is like, if we're not found written in the book of life, then that's where we are. But how do you get there? How do you get to that book of life? Again, it's not by works. Today, if you're sitting there and you, you haven't trusted in Christ and you're like, I don't actually know how to be on a right terms with God. I don't know how to be reconciled to this holy God. You're correct to understand that you can't do it. You're correct to understand that you can't climb your way back to him. You don't have the pen to sketch your name into this book. There's only one who does. And he says, come to me by faith. Come to me by faith. Trust in the completed work that he has done for you. Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life for the fact that he needs to give you a perfect record of righteousness before God. He died on the cross because he needs to absorb on your behalf all of the wrath of God towards sin. He's buried in the grave because your sin, my sin, needs to be completely buried. And he, he raised up from the dead. He resurrected for the purpose that anyone who trusts in him is given eternal life. Today, you don't have to do anything. You have to know, you have to believe, you have to trust in this Savior. And the amazing news is then the work is complete. Even when you're walking through suffering, even when you're going through all these things, it doesn't mean that your salvation is defective. It doesn't mean that you're not obedient enough to Christ, and so God is inflicting you with a bunch of suffering just because he wants to punish you. When you come to Christ, when your name is written down there by faith, when you have trusted in his work to be complete on your behalf, and God looks at you as his child, his child that he loves, his child that he would never neglect, his child that he would never forget about, he looks at you as his child with perfect love. And so you and I don't have to fear the second death. Right? This church here is facing legitimate death for following Christ. And they're told, you don't actually have to fear it. The reason is because the far more important second death will not harm you when you are in Christ. And Jesus says this because he knows, like Matthew chapter 10, because he knows that these people can kill the body, but they cannot touch the soul. Right? There's only one who can do that, and instead of banishing you, he is bringing you in to eternal reward. And Jesus knows that he has conquered and destroyed the one who had power over death. As Hebrews uh, chapter 2 says, 
that Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of, over death, and through that he freed all of those who were subject to its lifelong slavery through fear. That's where we all are as human beings who know we will die. There is a lifelong fear of death, but Jesus has set us free from that. And again, Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. Jesus has died, he has risen again. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And he holds the keys to death and Hades. The devil doesn't hold the keys. The enemies of God don't hold the keys. The people that are, that are attacking you or hurting you, does not, they do not hold the keys. Jesus holds the keys. And he set you free with those keys. He set you free from that prison with those very keys. And so today, as we go from here, I want us to just put this into practice in a few simple ways. And the first is to remember one thing. I want you, if you remember like nothing else, I want you to remember this one thing so that the next time that you or me are going through something incredibly difficult, I want you to remember that Jesus knows. He knows. When you have like nothing else to say, and when you have no other words to put to it, and you don't know what to pray, and you don't know what's good enough to do or to believe or whatever, you can know your Savior knows. You know the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who has conquered all things, puts his hand on you, and he says, fear not. Fear not, church. Jesus knows. You have a treasure stored up for you. Through the, the victory that Christ has won, through the gospel, I mean, we just have to, when we're suffering, we have to go back to the reminder of the gospel itself, this thing that we so often neglect after we walk with Christ for a while, we forget how, important, how powerful it is for the entirety of our lives, not just the beginning of them. Remember that Christ worked victory through death, and he's conquered it, right? The, the gospel is not just that you've been forgiven of your sins. It's that Jesus has conquered all things, and he is Lord of all. That's, the, that's also part of the good news, that his kingdom has been brought in because he has been risen from the dead. So you can remember that he knows because he has suffered. You can remember that he knows because he is all-sufficient and all-knowing. You can remember that he's the first and the last, which means he is the Lord of the beginning, the end, and everything in between, which includes you and me right now today. You can remember that he's disarmed every principality and power. He's disarmed every single one of them. He put them to shame. I remember Colossians 2, that he triumphed over them in the cross, and he put them to shame. He's put his enemies, he's, he's disarmed them, he's putting them under his feet. He rules over all things. And this all-powerful God and King is with you and with me. He doesn't neglect us. He doesn't lose us. He doesn't misplace us. He's with us. And so for the church that is suffering, for you who are suffering today, He is with you. He is with you. He has a purpose through all the pain. He has power that will overcome and there is a victory laid up for you as you work, as you by his spirit follow in obedience. Even though you and me are going to have some faltering obedience, right? Our obedience is not going to be perfect all the time. But even as we walk in that, 
Christ is sitting there, not just at the finish line, but next to us. He's like, I know, and I've won, and keep on walking with me. And through that, through that victory, that promise, that treasure that we have in Christ, as we cast our eyes to it, that's why we're called Maranatha, right? Because we want to be people that are shaped by the end. We want to be people that are shaped by the reality that is coming, by the king that will return. As we do that, we will be able to walk through suffering, to walk through mistreatment, to walk through trial and tribulation, because his power truly is greater And not just greater for the world around you, it's greater for you today. Let's pray together. Father God, you are holy and righteous. And Lord, sometimes we struggle to believe. Uh, We struggle to believe. And as we walk through our trial and our suffering, Lord, I pray that you would give us faith. Give us faith to obey when it is difficult. Lord, we ask that you would give us a greater picture of our Savior because we want to remember the victory that he has won. Remember, we, we remember that he is more powerful even when we struggle to believe it. And give us your grace to rest in that today. And for our hearts that may be broken, Lord, strengthen us by your Spirit. We ask all this in Christ's name in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.